0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. Before we begin a full-length novel, I wanted to add a couple of special stories that I've come across in the past few months. One of my favorite authors was outdoorsman and sportsman Zane Gray. And a couple of years ago, we did a special on bonefish that he had written as part of a larger collection he has called Tales of Fishes, which was published by Harper Brothers in 1919. Lots of great story in Tales of Fishes. We covered bonefish a few years ago, and I'd like to cover a story he did called Avalon the Beautiful, which is a story about fishing off Catalina Island in 1917. Now, Catalina Island off of California, also called Santa Catalina, is best known for its wildlife, scuba diving, charming coastal towns, and Mount Orizaba, which is its highest peak. There's two main resort towns on that island the more rustic town of Two Harbors, and the quaint and historic town of Avalon. And it's to Avalon the Beautiful that Zane Gray is going to take us on a fishing trip of a lifetime and with a powerful message of conservation. And now, Tales of Fishes, Chapter 14, Avalon the Beautiful, by Zane Gray. If you are a fisherman and aspire to the study or conquest of the big game of the sea, go to Catalina Island once before it is too late. The summer of 1917 will never be forgotten by those fishermen who were fortunate enough to be at Avalon. Early in June, even in May, there were indications that the first record season in many years might be expected. Barracuda and white sea bass showed up in great schools. The ocean appeared to be full of albacore. Yellowtail began to strike all along the island's shores and even in the Bay of Avalon. Almost every day in July, sight of broad-billed swordfish was reported, sometimes as many as ten in a day. In August, the bluefin tuna surged in, school after school, in vast numbers, and in September returned the marlin, or round-billed swordfish, that royal purple swashbuckler of the Pacific. This extraordinary run of fish appeared like old times to the boatmen and natives who could look back over many Catalina years. The cause, of course, was a favorable season when the sardines and anchovies came to the island in incalculable numbers. Acres and acres of these little bait fish drifted helplessly to and fro, back and forth with the tides, from seal rocks to the west end. These schools were not broken up until the advent of the voracious tuna, and when they arrived the ocean soon seemed littered with small, amber-colored patches each of which was a densely packed mass of sardines or anchovies, drifting with the current. It has not yet been established that swordfish feed on these schools, but the swordfish were there in abundance, at any rate, and it was reasonable to suppose that some of the fish they feed on were in pursuit of the anchovies. Albacore feeding on the surface raised a thin, low, white line of water or multitudes of slight, broken splashes. Tuna raised a white wall, "'tumbling and spouting along the horizon, "'and it is a sight not soon to be forgotten by a fisherman. "'Near at hand a big school of feeding tuna "'is a thrilling spectacle. "'They move swiftly, breaking water "'as they smash after the little fish, "'and the roar can be heard quite a distance. "'The wall of white water seems full of millions "'of tiny, glinting fish, "'leaping frantically from the savage tuna. "'And when the sunlight shines golden "'through this wall of white spray,' and the great bronze and silver and blue tuna gleam for an instant. The effect is singularly exciting and beautiful. All through August and much of September, these schools of tuna, thousands of them, ranted up and down the coast of Catalina, thinning out the amber patches of anchovies and affording the most magnificent sport to anglers. These tuna may return next year, and then again they may not return for ten years. "'Sometime again they will swing round the circle "'or drift with the currents "'in that mysterious and inscrutable nature of the ocean. "'And if a fisherman can pick out the year "'or have the obsession to go back season after season, "'he will some day see these wonderful schools again. "'But as for the other fish, "'swordfish, white sea-bass, yellowtail, and albacore, "'their doom has been spelled, "'and soon they will be no more.' That is why I say to fishermen, if they want to learn something about these incomparable fish, they must go soon to Catalina before it's too late. The Japanese, the Austrians, the round-haul nets, the canneries, and the fertilizer plants, that is to say, foreigners and markets, greed and war, have cast their dark shadow over beautiful Avalon. The intelligent, far-seeing boatmen all see it. "'My boatman, Captain Danielson, spoke gloomily of the not-distant time when his occupation would be gone. And as for the anglers who fish at Catalina, some of them see it, and many of them do not. The standard raised at Avalon has been to haul in as many of the biggest fish in the least possible time. One famous fisherman brought in thirteen tuna, nine hundred and eighty-six pounds of tuna, that he caught in one day. This is unbelievable.' "'Yet it is true. "'Another brought in eleven tuna in one day. "'These fishermen are representative of the coterie "'who fish for records. "'All of them are big, powerful men, "'and when they hook a fish, "'they will not give him a foot of line if they can help it. "'They horse him in, "'and if they can horse him in before he wakes up to real combat, "'they are the better pleased. "'All of which is to say that the true motive, "'or pleasure, if it can be such, "'is the instinct to kill.' I have observed this in many fishermen. Anyone who imagines that man has advanced much beyond the savage stage has only carefully to observe fishermen. I have demonstrated the practicability of letting marlin swordfish go after they were beaten, but almost all of the boatmen will not do it. The greater number of swordfish weigh under two hundred pounds, and when exhausted and pulled up to the boat they can be freed by cutting the wire leader close to the hook. Probably all these fish will live. A fisherman will have his fun seeing and photographing the wonderful leaps and conquering the fish, and when all this is over, it would be sportsmanlike to let him go. Marlin are not food fish, and they're thrown to the sharks. During 1918, however, many were sold as food fish. It seems a pity to treat this royal, fighting, wonderful, purple-colored fish in this way. But the boatmen will not free them. "'My boatman claimed that his reputation depended upon the swordfish he caught, "'and that in Avalon no one would believe fish were caught unless brought to the dock. "'It was his bread and butter. "'His reputation brought him new fishermen, and so he could not afford to lose it. "'Nevertheless, he was persuaded to do it in 1918. "'The fault, then, does not lie with the boatman. "'The Japanese are the greatest market fishermen in the world.' and some 500 boats put out of San Pedro every day to scour the ocean for the chicken of the sea, as albacore are advertised to the millions of people who are always hungry. It must be said that the Japanese mostly fish square. They use a hook, and the barbless hook at that. Usually four Japanese constitute the crew of one of those fast 80-horsepower motorboats. They roam the sea with sharp eyes, ever alert for that thin white line on the horizon, the feeding albacore. Their method of fishing is unique and picturesque. When they sight albacore, they run up on the school and slow down. In the stern of the boat stands a huge tank, usually painted red. I have become used to seeing dots of red all over the ocean. This tank is kept full of fresh seawater by a pump connected with the engine, and it is used to keep live bait, no other than the little anchovies. One Japanese fisherman, using a little net, "'dips up live bait and throws them overboard to the albacore. "'Another Japanese fisherman beats on the water "'with long bamboo poles, making splashes. "'The other two fishermen have short, stiff poles "'with a wire attached and the barbless hook at the end. "'They put on a live bait and toss it over. "'Instantly they jerk hard, and two big white albacore, "'from 15 to 30 pounds, come wiggling up to the stern of the boat. "'Down goes the pole and whack!' goes the club. It's all done with swift mechanical precision. It used to amaze me and fill me with sadness. If the Japs could hold the school of albacore, they would very soon load the boat. But usually a school of albacore cannot be held long. You cannot fish in the channel anymore without encountering these Japanese boats. Once at one time, in 1917, I saw 132 Japanese boats. Most of them were fishing— They ran to and fro over the ocean, chasing every white splash, and they make an angler's pleasure taste bitter. Fortunately, the Japanese had let the tuna alone, for the simple and good reason that they had not found a way to catch the wise bluefins. But they will find a way. Yet they drove the schools down, and that was almost as bad. As far as swordfish are concerned, it is easy to see what will happen, now that the albacore have become scarce." Broad-billed swordfish are the finest food fish in the sea. They can be easily harpooned by these skillful Japanese, and so eventually they will be killed and driven away. This misfortune may not come at once, but it will come. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and In this connection it is interesting to note that I tried to photograph one of the Austrian crews in action, but Captain Dan would not let me get near enough to take a picture. There is bad blood between Avalon boatmen and these foreign market fishermen. Shots had been exchanged more than once. Captain Dan kept a rifle on board. This news sort of stirred me, and I said, "'Run close to that bunch, Cap. Maybe they'll take a peg at me.' But he refused to comply, and I lost a chance to serve my country." The Japanese, however, are square fishermen, mostly, and I rather admire those albacore chasers who at least give the fish a chance. Some of them use nets, and against them and the Austrian round-haul netters I am exceedingly bitter. These round-haul nets, some of them, must be a mile long, and they sink two hundred feet in the water. What chance has a school of fish against that? They surround a school, and there's no escape. Clementi Island, the sister island to Catalina, was once a paradise for fish, especially the beautiful gamey yellowtail. But there are no more fish there, except marlin swordfish in August and September. The great boiling schools of yellowtail are gone. Clemente Island has no three-mile law protecting it, as has Catalina. But that Catalina law has become a farce. It is violated often in broad daylight. "'and probably all night long. "'One Austrian round-hall netter "'took seven tons of white sea-bass in one hall. seven tons! "'Did you ever look at a white sea-bass? "'He's the most beautiful of bass, "'slender, graceful, thoroughbred, "'exquisitely colored like a paling opal, "'and a fighter if there ever was one. "'What becomes of those seven tons of white sea-bass "'and all the other tons and tons of yellowtail and albacore?' "'That is a question. It needs to be answered. "'During the year 1917, one heard many things. "'The fish canneries were working day and night, "'and every can of fish, the whole output has been bought "'by the government for the soldiers. "'That's fine. We're a nation at war. "'Our soldiers must be properly fed, and so must our allies. "'If it takes all the fish in the sea and all the meat on the land, "'we must and will win this war.' But real patriotism is one thing, and misstatement is another. If there were not so much deceit and greed in connection with this war, it would be easier to stomach. As a matter of cold fact, that Roundhall netter's seven tons of beautiful white sea bass did not go into cans for our good soldiers or for our fighting allies. Those seven tons of splendid white sea bass went into the fertilizer plant, where many and many a ton had gone before It is not hard to comprehend. When they work for the fertilizer plants, they do not need ice. They do not need to hurry to the port to save spoiling. They can stay out till the boat is packed full. So often a greater part of the magnificent schools of white sea bass, albacore, and yellowtail, splendid food fish, go into the fertilizer plants to make a few foreign-born hogs rich. Hundreds of aliens, many of them hostile to the United States, are making big money which is then sent abroad. I believe that the great kelp beds round Catalina are the spawning grounds of these fish in question. And not only a spawning ground, but what is more important, a feeding ground. And now the kelp beds are being exploited. The government needs potash. Formerly our supply of potash came from Germany. But now that we're not on amiable terms with those nice, gentle Germans, we cannot get any potash. Hence the great huge kelp cutters that you hear cut only the tops of the kelp beds. Six feet, they say, and it all grows up again quickly, they say. But in my opinion, the once vast, heaving, wonderful beds of kelp along the Clementi and Catalina shores have been cut too deeply, and they will die. Some of my predictions here, made in 1917, were verified in 1918. A few scattered schools of albacore appeared in the channel in July, but these were soon caught or chased away by the market boats. Albacore fishing was poor in other localities up and down the coast. Many of the Japanese fishermen sold their boats and sought other industries. It was a fact, and a great pleasure, that an angler could go out for tuna without encountering a single market boat on the sea. Maybe the albacore did not come this year. Maybe they were mostly all caught. Maybe they were growing shyer of boats. At any event, they were scarce, and the reason seems easy to see. It was significant that the broadbill swordfish did not return to Avalon in 1918, as in former years. I saw only one in two months roam in the ocean. A few were seen. Not one was caught during my stay on the island. Many boatmen and anglers believed that the broad-bills followed the albacore. It seems safe to predict that when the albacore cease to come to Catalina, there will not be any fishing for the great, plat-sorted Ziphius. The worst that came to pass in 1918, from an angler's viewpoint, was that the market fishermen found a way to net the bluefin tuna, both large and small. All I could learn was that the nets were lengthened and deepened. "'The Japs got into the great schools of large tuna "'which appeared off Anacapa Island "'and netted tons and tons of hundred-pound tuna. "'These schools drifted on down the middle of the Clementi Channel, "'and I was the lucky fellow who happened to get among them "'for one memorable day. "'Take it all in all, "'my gloomy prophecies of other years were substantiated in 1918, "'especially in regard to the devastated kelp beds. "'But there have been a few silver rifts in the black cloud.' and it seems well to end this book with mention of brighter things. All fish brought into Avalon in 1918 were sold for food. We inaugurated the releasing of small marlin swordfish. There was a great increase in the interest taken in the use of light tackle. We owe the latter stride toward conservation and sportsmanship to Mr. James Jump and to Lone Angler and to President Cox of the Tuna Club. I had not been entirely in sympathy with their feats of taking marlin swordfish and tuna on light tackle. My objections to the use of too light tackle have been cited before in this book. Many fish break away on the nine-thread. I know this because I've tried it out. Fifteen of those small tuna, one after another, broke my line on the first rush, but I believe that was my lack of skill with the handling of the rod in the boat." "'As for Marlin, I have always known that I could take some of those round bill swordfish on light tackle, but likewise there have been some that could not have been taken so, and these are the swordfish I have fished for. Nevertheless, I certainly do not want to detract from Jump's achievements, as I will show. They have been remarkable, and they have attracted wide attention to the possibilities of light tackle. Thus Mr. Jump has done conservative angling inestimable good, as well as placed himself in a class alone.' The use of light tackle by experts for big-game fish of the sea has come to be an established practice in American angling. A few years ago, when sport with light tackle was exceptional, it required courage to flaunt its use in the faces of fishermen of experience and established reputation. Long Key, now the most noted fishing resort on the Atlantic coast, was not many years back a place for hand lines and huge rods and tackle, and boatloads of fish for one man. It has become a resort for gentlemen anglers, and its sportsman club claimed such experts and fine exponents of angling as Heilner, Lester, Cassiard, Crown and Shield, Conial, the Chutes, and others, who could safely be trusted to advance the standard. Fishermen are like sheep. They follow the boldest leaders, and no one wants to be despised by the elect. Long key with its isolation, yet easy accession, its beauty and charm, its loneliness and quiet, its big game fish, will become the mecca of high-class light-tackle anglers, who will in time answer for the ethics and sportsmanship of the whole Atlantic seaboard. On the Pacific side, the light-tackle advocates have had a different row to hoe. With nothing but keen, fair, honest, and splendid zealousness, Mr. James Jump has pioneered this sport almost single-handed against the heavy-tackle record holder, who until recently dominated the tuna club and the boatmen and the fishing at Avalon. To my shame and regret, I confess that it took me three years to recognize Jump's bigness as an angler and his tenacity as a fighter, but I shall make amends. It seems when I fished I was steeped in dreams of the sea and the beauty of the lonely islands. I am not in Jump's class as a fisherman, nor in lone anglers, either. They stand by themselves, but I can write about them, and so inspire others. Jump set out in 1914 to catch swordfish on light tackle, and incidentally tuna under 100 pounds. He was ridiculed, scorned, scoffed at, made a butt of by this particular heavy tackle angler, and cordially hated for his ambitions. Most anglers and boatmen repudiated his claims and looked askance at him. Personally, I believe Jump might catch some swordfish or tuna on light tackle, but only one out of many, and that one not the fighting kind but I was wrong. It was lone angler who first drew my attention to Jump's achievements and possibilities. President Cox was alive to them also, and he has rebuilt and rejuvenated the tuna club on the splendid standards set by its founder, Dr. Charles Friedrich Holder. And with infinite patience and tact and labor, and love of fine angling and good fellowship, he has put down that small but mighty clique who threatened the ruin of sport at Fair Avalon. This has not been public news, but it ought to be and shall be public news. The malignant attack recently made upon Mr. Jump's catches of Marlin swordfish on light tackle was uncalled for and utterly false. It was an obvious and jealous attempt to belittle, discredit, and dishonor one of the finest gentlemen sportsmen who ever worked for the good of the game. I know, and I will swear, that Jump's capture of the 314-pound Marlin on light tackle in 28 minutes was absolutely as honest as it was skillful. "'as sportsmanlike as it was wonderful. "'A number of well-known sportsmen watched him take this marlin. "'Yet his enemies slandered him, accused him of using ropes, "'and heaven knows what else. "'It was vile, and the attack failed. "'Jump has performed the apparently impossible. "'Marlin swordfish hooked on light tackle "'can be handled by an exceedingly skillful angler. "'They make an indescribably spectacular, wonderful fight "'on the surface all the time.' and can be taken as quickly as on heavy tackle. Obviously, then, this becomes true of tarpon, and sailfish, and small tuna. What a world to conquer lies before the fine-spirited angler. A few fish on light outfits magnifying all the excitement and thrills of many fish on heavy outfits. There are no arguments against this, for many who have time and money. We pioneers of light tackle are out of the woods now. There was a pride in a fight against odds. A pride of silence, and a fight of example and express standards and splendid achievements. But now we have followers, disciples who have learned, who have profited, who have climbed to the heights, and we are no longer alone. Hence we can scatter the news to the four winds and ask for the comradeship of kindred spirits, of men who love the sea and the stream and the gameness of a fish. The open sesame to our clan is just that love and an ambition to achieve higher things. Who fishes just to kill? "'At Long Key last winter I met two self-styled sportsmen. "'They were eager to convert me to what they claimed was the dry-fly class angling of the sea. "'And it was to jab harpoons and spears into porpoises and manatee and sawfish, "'and be dragged about in their boat. "'The height of their achievements that winter had been the harpooning of several sawfish, "'each of which gave birth to a little one while being fought on the harpoon. "'Good God! "'It would never do to record my utterances at the time.' but I record this fact only in the hope of opening the eyes of anglers. I have no axe to grind for myself. I've gone through the game, over to the fair side, and I want anglers to know. We are a nation of fishermen and riflemen. Who says the Americans cannot shoot or fight? What made that great bunch of Yankee boys turn back the Hun hordes? It was the quick eye, the steady nerve, the unquenchable spirit of the American boy. His heritage from his hunter forefathers. We are great fishermen's sons also, and we can save the fish that are being depleted in our waters. Let every angler who loves the fish think what it would mean to him to find the fish were gone. The mackerel are gone. The bluefish are going. The menhaden are gone. Every year the amberjack and kingfish grow smaller and fewer. We must find ways and means to save our gamefish of the sea, and one of the finest and most sportsmanlike ways. Is to use light tackle. Happily, neither war nor business nor fish hogs can ruin the wonderful climate of Catalina Island. Nature does not cater to evil conditions. The sun and the fog, the great calm Pacific, the warm Japanese current, the pleasant winds. These all have their tasks, and they perform them faithfully to the happiness of those who linger at Catalina. Avalon the Beautiful "'Somehow even the fire that destroyed half of Avalon "'did not greatly mar its beauty. "'At a distance, the bay and the grove of eucalyptus trees, "'the green and gold slopes, look as they always looked. "'Avalon has a singular charm outside of its sport of fishing. "'It is the most delightful and comfortable place I ever visited. "'The nights are cool. "'You sleep under blankets. "'Even when over in Los Angeles people are suffocating with the heat. "'At dawn the hills are obscured in fog.' And sometimes this fog is chilly, but early or late in the morning it breaks up and rolls away. The sun shines. It is the kind of sunshine that dazzles the eye, elevates the spirit, and warms the back. And out there rose the vast blue Pacific, calm, slowly heaving, beautiful, and mysterious. During the summer months Avalon is gay, colorful, happy, and mirthful with its crowds of tourists and summer visitors. The one broad street runs along the beach, and I venture to say no other street in America can compare with it for lazy, idle, comfortable, pleasant, and picturesque effects. It is difficult to determine just where the beach begins and the street ends, because of the strollers in bathing suits. Many a time, after a long fishing day on the water, as I was walking up the middle of the street, I've been stunned to a gasp by the startling apparition of Venus or Hebe or Little Egypt "'or Annette Kellerman, parading nonchalantly to and fro. "'It seems reasonable and fair to give notice "'that broadbill swordfish are not the only dangers "'to encounter at Avalon. "'I wish they had a policeman there. "'But the spirit of Avalon, like the climate, "'is something to love. "'It is free, careless, mirthful, wholesome, "'restful, and serene. "'The resort is democratic and indifferent and aloof, "'yet there is always mirth, music, and laughter.' Many and many a night have awakened, anywhere from ten to one, to listen to the low lap of the waves on the beach, the soft tones of an Hawaiian ukulele, the weird cry of a nocturnal seagull, the bark of a sea lion, or the faint, haunting laugh of some happy girl, going by late, perhaps with her lover. Avalon is so clean and sweet, it's the only place I've been, except Long Key, where the omnipresent, hateful, and stinking automobile does not obtrude upon real content. Think of air not reeking with gasoline and a street safe to cross at any time. Safe, I mean, of course, from being run down by some joy-rider. You are liable to encounter one of the Lorelei or Aphrodites at any hour from five till sunset. You must risk chance of that. So in conclusion, let me repeat that if you are a fisherman of any degree and if you aspire to some wonderful experiences with the great and vanishing game fish of the Pacific, and if you would love to associate with these adventures some dazzling white hot days, and unforgettable cool nights where your eyelids get glued with sleep, and the fragrant salt breath of the sea, its music and motion and color and mystery and beauty, then go to Avalon before it's too late. I hope you enjoyed this story called Avalon the Beautiful. From Zane Gray, we always appreciate reviews at 1001 Stories for the Road, and we have a bunch of new ones for you. The first one, Suzette, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. Thank you for a wonderful podcast. I love to listen at bedtime. You help me sleep. Thank you. Down from Suzette 7, Apple Podcast, France. Thank you, Suzette. And this one, Fantastic Listen, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I love listening to all the 1001 stories. I like the way they are read, perfect while doing chores, and I always listen while going on walks or traveling. Also while I'm doing my uni work. Great stuff. Please keep going. I'm a big fan. Down from Lena Caroline, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, wonderful. 1001 stories for the road, five stars. I've been listening to some other 1001 stories and finally decided to try this one. Well, I love it. The stories are amazing, and the narrator, John, has a really good voice that's really easy to listen to. I will be recommending this to everyone I know. Thank you, John. do from Stella Stadenko, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, The Show, 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I'm now listening to Hounds of the Baskervilles, and I'm enjoying every bit of it. This has really surprised me, since I wasn't going to listen to it due to the fact that I've seen it on TV so often. I'm glad now that I didn't stick to that idea. Very enjoyable. Thank you so much. Love the booze with lots of chapters. A new but loyal listener. That one from CLY, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to send us the reviews. They are greatly appreciated. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.